0: Welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Tariq Megarisi. Tariq is a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the ECFR, the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a political analyst and researcher who specializes in Libyan affairs and, more generally, politics, governance, and development in the Arab world. He's a regular visitor to our Arab Digest podcast, and I'm delighted to have him back.
1: Thank you for inviting me again. It's it's always a pleasure to be here, Bill.
0: Tarek, we're less than two months away from an election in Libya on the 24th of December. and First of all, is that election going to happen? And if it does, what chance that it will be free, transparent and above board?
1: Well, I mean, uh, whether it, it, it happens or not is still up in the air. I I think that there is considerably more chance of it happening uh, than is than is usually given credit for you know the reason why people say that the election won't happen is because they just have a, a consideration or a, a prerequisite that you know an election has to have some kind of standard of integrity and it seems to be that the you know the powers that be who are pushing through this election have no such preconceptions um, and so we have a few countries who are absolutely adamant that, that come what may, there will be a vote uh, in Libya on December 24th. Um, and, and so, you know, it looks like they might get their way, but there is absolutely zero chance that that vote that would be held under the current circumstances has, uh, has any integrity, has any security, um, is able to be conducted in a free and fair fashion is even able to be conducted in a in a reasonable and logical fashion you know an election in libya will, will not have the highest bar but you know even basic things like a freedom to register to campaign a campaigning period that makes sense knowing exactly what the office is uh, that is being voted for uh, and and what the function of that office is all of these things look unlikely to happen in the libyan case
0: that's pretty stark, uh, but let us say it does go ahead. Will the various factions commit to any kind of a process that makes any sort of sense, or will it be just basically a dogfight?
1: No, I I think a a degree of, of chaos is kind of baked into this electoral process on purpose, I mean, I would bet considerable amounts that, you know, the electoral laws um, as they were formed and, and the entire process for how this election is, is coming to pass was designed in order to provoke such outrage that an election wouldn't happen. And it's a kind of plan B uh, that, that that the elections themselves would be so, so poorly constructed that even should they come to pass, they will be so easily contestable and it will be so easy to delegitimize them. Um, and so we see no indication that the kind of main factions of the country or or the main political leaders, because let's not kid ourselves about, you know, these guys having tremendous amounts of, of public support, uh, are just extending their, their zero-sum competition with, with one another. I think they would all like for the elections to not happen, so they can maintain their status quo. Uh, but even if it does happen, I think that they are in a fairly comfortable position to, to seriously undermine them and to delegitimize whatever they produce.
0: And uh, we we should just mention that the election will be a presidential election. That's because uh, Aguila Saleh, the speaker of the Eastern-based House of Representatives, was able to push through some decrees that uh, basically create a very powerful presidential position, one which uh, the warlord Khalifa Haftar, will probably like to go after. But I wanted to ask you about uh, a story I came across about Haftar and the Military Investment Authority. What are the details there? And also tell us where Haftar is in positioning as we head into this uh, so-called election.
1: Well, the, the two issues actually kind of do gel together quite nicely. Haftar's army the the Libyan Arab Armed Forces was was constructed on his behalf by the Egyptians and it's it's very much built in the model of the Egyptian army which has probably a, a considerably larger economic arm than it has a, an actual fighting arm and so this this military investment authority under the under the supervision of of his children and a few close associates has essentially cannibalized the economy of of eastern Libya and early on in in Haftar's posturing, to become the next president, uh, it figured quite heavily in his in his kind of populist uh, statement. So, you know, there were comments that uh, that Haftar is is going to, to plan for the construction of new satellite cities around Benghazi which could uh, hold millions of people and which will have new hospitals and so on and and all of this will be uh, will be orchestrated by the military investment authority and they there was a further statement that came out which you know had these nice pictures of diggers uh, working and you know bulldozers running and so on Uh, and apparently that they had contracts with the with the United Arab Emirates, um, uh, with or with companies from the United Arab Emirates, and so it seems like it's functioning. You know, it's it's bringing in outside contracts in order to do construction work, as a a number of other bodies in the country are. But yeah, the the Military Investment Authority it extends a lot further than that. You know, it extends uh, into the country's agricultural product uh, projects, for instance, um, even into dismantling um, some you know large pieces of infrastructure, like one of the stadiums in Benghazi so that they can sell the scrappage and, and the reinforced concrete. Uh, it's, yeah, I think cannibalize is a, is a good term for what it's doing um, in the areas that it can control. And, you know, despite all of the talk, I think it's it's still pretty clear that Haftar wants to run. The stories are that, you know, some of the countries that, that support him are, are trying to encourage him to not run, knowing how divisive a character he is. Uh, but I think that he personally is, is is adamant to run. He doesn't want to give up the ghost and... At the very least, we'll be able to say that, you know, no presidential candidate will emerge uh, from eastern Libya that does not have the approval of the Libyan Arab armed forces, of, of, of Haftar's organization. Um, and I think that that speaks volumes about what kind of a vote we can expect in the country. You know, it's, it's not going to be a, a free and fair election. Uh, no one's going to be able to to campaign against this pre-selected candidate. Uh, ballots will be stuffed, and just you know, so it doesn't sound like I'm I'm picking on people because you know, in this instance they are they are all as bad as each other. Uh, the same thing will probably happen in in western and in southern uh, Libya as well. We've seen with municipal elections that uh, militias will have their favorite guy. They don't shy away from ballot stuffing. So yeah, it's a. Uh, It's going to be an electoral process that is decided by security actors. um, And for the large part, the security actors have not been brought in to the electoral process to be part of that framework. And and so they will undermine it in their own way. And
0: uh, is Haftar creaming off some of the revenue from uh, this military investment authority?
1: I mean, I I don't think I can prove that, um, but it seems to be uh, the case that you know this is a, a slush fund, so to speak. Um, I mean, look, the the management of the military investment authority is is done through his children and and through a close associate, and everything uh, in Libya is, is is personalized, right? Just how the the prime minister has his own organizations that 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 he funnels projects and money through. It seems very clearly that that the military investment authority is. Is Haftar's economic uh, vehicle for for corruption and for monetizing his his regime.
0: Mm. The last time we had you on the podcast, you said about the current prime minister, Hamid Debeba, having a Debeba become prime minister of Libya is akin to having a Maklouf becoming prime minister of Syria or a Capone becoming president of the United States. His family name is synonymous with corruption. Tereke, any reason to change your opinion of the prime minister?
1: No, I mean, I I think he's done his family name proud. Um, You know, he's acted precisely how we all expected him to act uh, in his, what is it, six or seven months in power so far. He has spent an outrageous amount of money uh, for somebody whose job is supposed to be to facilitate elections and to facilitate the unification of the country. Uh, and to be fair, he is doing at least some of this in, in the service of unifying the country, but he's unifying it through corruption, rather than in a, in a meaningful or institutional sense of the term. His main MO, uh, whilst, in, whilst in power, in terms of how he deals with Libyan factions, how he deals with the international community, is, is very much by offering contracts, you know. Uh, the idea that, that Libya is, is rich enough for everybody to take a piece of the pie, um, and so, even with with countries that you know, you you could call enemies of Western Libya a few years ago, like like Egypt, uh, and now he's handing over billions of contract in order to buy their support, um, and to buy their recognition of 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 him and his legitimacy to rule. And so, yeah, if you look at the the Libyan re- re- uh, revolution in in two thousand and eleven, you would say that it's almost gone full circle now. But the idea that uh, you have a, a Baba in charge uh, who is who is essentially reconstructing the, the Gaddafi way of working.
0: You mentioned uh, Haftar's sons uh, and and of course the UAE, which as you suggest is still very much involved. Uh, it's reported that one of his sons, uh, Balqasim, met with Debeba in Abu Dhabi recently. What do you think we should read into that?
1: Yeah, you know, as part of their... Um, Part of their pivot, for one of a better term, uh, the Emiratis have been trying to to broker, um, you know, more more synergy or, or more harmony between the Libyan actors. And Debeba himself has visited Abu Dhabi a couple of times. A large delegation went out there um, in the early days of of his tenure, um, and you know, the I think the has tried to. To reach out to Haftar um, especially in the early days of his tenure he he didn't even stop the the cash flows to Haftar um, I think the baber's way of working is that he wants as many people as possible inside his tent, and so now you know, with the elections looming with some kind of change looming in the country, I think there are attempts by by numerous amounts of the countries involved in Libya to try to broker an understanding to minimize the amount of of violent destabilization that that should come to pass after the elections happen or don't happen.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, there's been a shift in the way the UAE is dealing with these issues, because previously, of course, they backed Haftar militarily. Now there seems to be more of a diplomatic approach, not just in Libya, but elsewhere in the region
1: yeah it's uh it's a new approach i mean I think that there's a recognition that the the kind of blunt military approach has only worked so far uh the landscape of the region has changed there is more overt resistance from from countries like Turkey and you know it's this is uh politics you know if 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 war is politics by other means then uh diplomacy is is war by other means right um and so not just the UAE, but but I think others uh, are now entering a new period. I think at least uh, since the start of 2021, it's almost been as if there's a shaky detente of sorts. Um, you know, you have the Egyptians and the Turks talking, you have the Turks and the Emiratis talking, you even have the Saudis and the Iranians talking. Um, so I think that there's a new period of of not calm, perhaps, but of maneuvering behind the scenes and of, yeah, war by other means. Um, but, hey, as long as people are talking, that that's always a better place to be in. And I think it was triggered to some extent by the U.S. withdrawal or the the posturing that it's trying to withdraw as much as possible from the region. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So, um, yeah, it will be interesting to see how long this, this period of detente lasts and if the Europeans or anybody else can help to land it in a more stable place. Mm.
0: Uh, you've urged in in our previous podcast and in your analysis for the ECFR that Europe needs to engage with the Libya situation. Um, unless I'm missing something, there does not seem to be much sign of that happening.
1: Well, I think the Europeans engage quite quite heavily with the Libyan situation. What I always try to argue is that, firstly, they 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 should raise its priority um, and to to recognise how much of a of a foreign policy threat, a A strategic uh, risk the country is becoming. um, And and secondly, that they should work much more cohesively and coherently towards real strategic goals um, for the country and and for the relationship between Europe, Libya, and and what the Europeans call the southern uh, neighborhood uh, writ large. And and yeah, I I don't think that that's exactly happening. Uh, I mean, we've seen Libya become a more important foreign policy issue. There was this lovely uh, joint visit by by the E3 foreign ministers, um, so the Italians, the Germans, the French, um, just after De Beba was, was appointed and his government was approved. Uh, we've seen the, the HRVP of, of the EU, Joseph Borrell, um, visit the country, but we don't really have the, the cohesion or the strategy quite yet. Um, you know, there's still this kind of almost hiding behind the UN process, uh, even when the UN seems to be more destructive than constructive. Uh, we still see this this difference in perspective and this difference of opinion uh, between key European capitals. Uh, we still see European capitals as, as being party or, or partisan in the country. And it's, you know, it's destructive from a European perspective. And we're seeing all of these kind of negativities become much more acute, as the country heads back towards instability and 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 heads towards these highly divisive elections, um, so you know you have countries uh, like France who who want elections at any cost and, and believe that you know uh, the risk of having elections is is less than the risk of not having them on the twenty fourth of December, and you have other capitals um, who believe that it's ludicrous and and that what we are doing. By restricting ourselves and restraining ourselves um, to the idea of of technically holding a vote on the 24th of December, despite that vote and that electoral process having no substantive elements attached to it, um, means that we are throwing away all of the good work that has been done to to, to try to stabilize the country since the war ended. Mm.
0: President Biden and his administration are the Americans engaging in, in an effective way do you think with the crisis
1: I mean the the US is certainly active um, at least from a diplomatic standpoint and the US is another one of the, of those who are leading the charge to ensure that elections are held come what may uh, on the 24th of December and so you know we have this this US engagement that 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 many have been asking for but yeah, it seems that, uh, the United States, along with Paris, are, um, are very keen and are leading the charge to ensure that, that these elections happen, um, and are more focused on the, the technical act of holding elections than, you know, the, the idea of what these elections stand for, what might happen the day after elections, um, what exactly is being voted in. And yeah, so. The U.S. is present, it is active, um, but it's become almost like another one of the European actors now. I don't know if that's positive or negative, though.
0: Yeah, um, there are not a lot of good guys in this this story, but uh, for me anyway, uh, Mustafa Sanala, who is the highly respected boss of the National Oil Company, he's in this running battle with the current oil minister. Uh, What's going on there and what are the stakes, do you think?
1: I mean just a a quick comment before because that that notion of good guys and bad guys um it made me think I mean unfortunately in this in this world we don't really have good guys and bad guys i mean even the bad guys don't think that that they are bad guys we just have everybody who are doing what they believe is the the best thing for themselves to do at any one time which is why i i always preach strategy as a uh, as being the key to having a kind of longer-term vision and a longer-term ability to, to yeah, actually be able to, to do more good than harm. Um, but but back to Sanallah, and uh, yeah, perhaps he he could also use a a dose of of good strategizing. Um, you know, Sanalla has been a a competent custodian of of Libya's oil infrastructure over the last five six years or so since he was appointed. But one mistake that he has made is to is to politicize the oil sphere and you know as a result of of his increasing politicization of of oil terminals of the idea of control over the oil of of what can be done with the uh, proceeds that that come from oil his own personal uh, seeming political ambitions and yeah the the management and the infrastructure and the spending and the deal making the international side of oil all of these things because he he politicized the whole oil industry he's now kind of suffering the consequences and this unimpeachable throne which he used to to sit on and, and be widely respected for um as the the competent lead of of Libya's only real functioning institution that that's left is now is now under threat you know there are there are other actors uh, who are representatives of the of the political factions in Libya, um, who, are, who are trying to, to overtly gain a share um, of, the, of the oil industry uh, or the oil system for, for one of a better turn. And now Sanallah is, is finding himself scrapping for, for authority with these people. I mean, luckily so far, you know Allah does seem to be the the best of the bunch and he's kind of brushed off these 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 challenges quite well but there are concerted attempts to to reorganize how the the national oil company of Libya um, sits and works and its board structure and so on and I think eventually that might come to undermine his position and and to create a new reality for for Libya's oil um, oil infrastructure and, and oil system whereby it's just as divided as everything else is in the country and and that would be a real benchmark of 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 how the country continues to deteriorate and to factionalize and to atomize.
0: Now, should this uh, election go ahead on the 24th of December, do you see Debeba emerging as the likely winner?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And I mean, let me just clarify a, a couple of points so that it doesn't sound too much like I'm just trying to trash the idea of of holding a vote in Libya. You know, I think that that Libyans have been quite clear about the fact that they do want elections in the country. Uh, What they really want is to replace the entire political elite uh, and all of the systems that are currently there right now. Um, And I think on a higher political level, there's an awareness and an agreement that, that Libya cannot proceed without a more legitimate and a more functional government. So the idea of a vote is, is rational, and, and really it should happen. The, the problem is that the, the actual electoral process seems to be so dysfunctional uh, that it would actually not be able to, to either replace the incumbent class, um, it would just uh, entrench the power of the most destructive people of that class, uh, like, like the Debebas, like uh, Aguila Saleh, the, the Speaker of the Parliament, like Haftar. Um, but it would it would also not grant them any legitimacy because and, and there are a number of reasons for this. Um, you know we've discussed how how the vote cannot be secure and how the electoral process will ultimately be decided by by security actors um, but there's there's also on a more fundamental level the fact that you know there is no consensus over the electoral law um, the the rules by which the elections are held, uh, and these were not even laws. these were decrees that were passed by. Aguila Saleh and that were rubber-stamped by the UN, and then on top of that there is no clear idea of what's being voted for. So this kind of decree that was passed by Aguila transforms Libya into a presidential system, uh, creates a presidency that is essentially all-powerful, that has no other bodies except for uh, the House of Representatives, which uh, Aguila Saleh conveniently leads and which has some protected roles such as um, authorizing international treaties and so on. But other than that, this all-powerful presidency uh, has no kind of uh, place in a wider legal or political structure. Uh, and it's also removed the, the obligation which every single government since 2011 has held in Libya, which is to finalize the transitional period of the country, to, to fix a constitution, to fix a permanent political system, uh, which is inclusive, which is more progressive, which can allow Libya to, 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 to progress. And so you essentially have created a, a dictator who has no obligation to pass power on, to, to do anything but to, to profit. And so for all of these reasons, um, and the fact that you know, there is no dispute resolution mechanism uh, for anybody to discuss uh, what went wrong with the vote or, or, or to fight their case, it's almost inevitable that that should we hold presidential elections on the 24th of December, the outcome will be contested um, on numerous grounds. Uh, And so whoever wins will have a highly contested legitimacy, uh, much like what happened in in 2014, and which kind of set the stall out for for six years of of division and and conflict and so on. Um, And then just to, to put the cherry on top of the cake, Uh, the parliament is not even going to be voted in on on the 24th of December. Uh, Aguila Saleh very uh, cunningly um, put forward a parliamentary election decree, uh, because again, it wasn't voted in as a law, uh, which states that, you know, 30 days after the presidency is appointed, uh, then the H.O.R. will convene and will uh, decide a day for parliamentary elections. Uh, which means that, you know, all of the main candidates uh, are able to to put themselves forward for election to the presidency. Uh, And then should they not win, either return to their old seat, or in Haftar's case, return to the barracks, and then to contest the results from that position. So we're headed towards a highly contested future, uh, which is not encouraging in a country as volatile and as divided uh, and as played with as Libya is. But, you know, back to the, the second part of that question, I do believe that in a kind of straight shot presidential election, uh, Abdel Hamid al will probably win. He is very popular in Tripoli right now. You know, the kind of, you know, he's he's got the trash cleaned up off the street. There are some construction projects moving. Uh, there are signs of life returning to the city, which has given him a lot of popularity. Um, on top of that, he's actually using government resources for his own election campaign, technically, you know, he's, he's putting forward highly popular strategies, um, like handing out what's called a marriage allowance. So he's giving, I think it's 10,000 Libyan dinars uh, to every newly married couple. Um, And so he's, you know, he's, he's buying his popularity, and he's doing it quite effectively. Uh, And the demographics of Libya suggest that, you know, whoever is most popular in in Western Libya, especially in Tripoli, um, will win the vote. But again, the caveat to this is that this will not be a, a free and fair election where each person casts their ballot. Ballot boxes will be stuffed. Um, games will be played. Um, and so I think even if he does win, those who lose, like like Haftar, will have enough of a, a vote count to be able to say, well, you know, I would have won if not for the... Um, if not for the games played by by my competitors, and so I dispute the the outcome and their outcome. So, yeah, we kind of go round in circles, but but everywhere we end up always suggests that there is um, a dispute to come.
0: And finally, Tedek, uh, there is a conference coming up in Paris on November twelfth. It's presided over by President Macron. Is there a possibility things will be made? A little simpler rather than more complicated? Dare I say, cause for some hope?
1: Well, if, if uh, Libya is anything to go by, it'll probably make things more complicated. But I mean, I, th- I think the, the best way to look at it is is as an opportunity. Um, I mean, from the perspective of Paris, um, they see a lot of progress has been made on, on security and political fronts, and, and they want to kind of... Lock that in, uh, and so to have a new conference um, in the line of of the Berlin conferences which have happened, where they can you know try to consolidate and 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 to build on that. But you know Paris is is very convinced that elections at all costs on December twenty fourth must happen, um, and so they're kind of reverse engineering the conference from from that perspective. Um, I mean, again, to to give Paris some credit here because we often lament French unilateralism. Um, they've tried to do this in the, in the spirit of the Berlin Conference. And so they are they are doing it within that framework. Um, they are doing it in tandem uh, with the Germans and the Italians. And, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to try to find international consensus around and, and try to build some of these substantive points that, that will make the elections meaningful, that will make them workable. Um And that will not just you know tie us to this very reductive idea of oh we we hold a vote on on christmas Eve and and no matter what happens um that that's all that counts um and so you know hopefully especially considering that that uh, I believe that they'll be trying to to bring some Libyan attendance as well that you know you get ideas for how to build more consensus you get uh, a clear vision for adding that that extra bit of of constitutional basis or, or constitutional or you know some idea of, of what the mandate of, of the president will be and and how that fits in and and how that keeps libya's transition going uh, hopefully there will be some plan for for how to fit in security sector reform and the security sector to be part of the electoral framework so that they don't simply you know attack it from the outside um and you know all of these these issues i mean i think as well the the issue of 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 hate speech you know and and disinformation Uh, countries like like russia like turkey like others are, are are running these bot farms which are are pumping out disinformation and which are you know pumping out incitements to violence and if this was any other country, then then companies like like Facebook would have an enhanced operations center to to monitor it and to try to protect the integrity of the elections. And again, this Paris conference is an opportunity for internationals to come together and to push companies like Facebook and others to to pay more attention to the disinformation space in what is a highly volatile election in and in a highly volatile country. Um, whether that happens or not um, is yeah is is a lot more questionable but you know i think whether he intended this to happen or not now um, you know president macron has has tied his uh, his credentials as a global statesman and, and, and as a diplomatic player or a global player to these libyan elections um you know in the minds of of the many the last thing that people see or will see before libya's elections will be president macron convening world leaders um to discuss libya um, so if these elections should blow up in his face, two months time as as he starts his own presidential election campaign, uh, I don't think it will be a good look. So so hopefully that incentivizes uh, the French to be to be more more cautious rather than uh, gung ho.
0: Mm, well, uh, we can hope, and we can hope too that uh, some good does come out of the elections. Uh, a slender hope perhaps, but um, hope nonetheless. Tere- Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's always a pleasure.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this week's Arab Digest podcast, and thank you for listening. My guest today was Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Arab Digest also publishes a newsletter featuring some of the very best MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the Arab Digest newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.